This morning's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 38. Please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be with you. Um, This fall, we've been going through a series looking at questions God asks us. And last week, if you were here, we looked at Matthew 8, which has a parallel account in Mark 4. And in that uh, episode uh, from the life and ministry of Jesus, in Matthew 8, there's a storm on the Sea of Galilee that, that blows up out of nowhere. And as it blows up out of nowhere, the water is breaking over the boat, and the disciples are anxious. And in their anxiety, uh, they go and they wake up Jesus, who's asleep in the stern of the boat. And, and in there, they say, do you not care that we're perishing? And Jesus rises, and he stands, and he speaks. And the storm stops, and it says it's dead calm. And what we find out in Matthew's or Mark's account, which is really Peter's account, because most folks would understand that, that Peter, with Mark as his protege, had communicated to him the stories of his life going, following Jesus as a disciple, and that Mark is the one who pinned those. It says that in Mark 4.41 that the disciples turned to each other and said, Who is this? So even several chapters ago, the disciples, through Jesus' mighty works of of casting out demons and and bringing healing to those who are lame and sick and and, and now calming the storms, they're they're asking this question, who is Jesus? What we find is that's a pretty common way that in the rabbinical tradition that, that, that the disciples would learn from their master. They would ask questions. Well, you not... What you don't find often is that the rabbi asking the disciples questions. But as you look at the Gospels, what you find is Jesus is always asking questions, just as God is always asking questions of his people. And this morning's 
question, it, in a manner of speaking, is kind of a three-for-one deal. <laughs> uh, we're going to look at who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am talking to the disciples? And then for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And so through those questions, we're looking at this one central one uh, of who is Jesus? And that is a tremendous question because as one historian said, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about Jesus, he has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions curse and in his name millions pray. Jesus undisputably is the most important, influential, and impactful figure in all of human history. Regardless of belief or background, Jesus is hard to ignore. Approximately 2 million people on the face of the earth identify, in, in the most broad of terms, as Christian. Many of those are, are, are avid followers, faithful followers of Jesus. They are His disciples. More than a billion Muslims honor Jesus as a great prophet. Leading Jewish theologians esteem him as a tremendous and great teacher. You can find Jesus' image even in Hindu temples or on poster board with John 3.16 in a stadium near you. The reality is that despite all the attention that Jesus gets, most people have very little idea of who he really is including some of the people in church. In 2003, Steve Pothreo, a professor at Boston University, a professor of religion, wrote a book called The American Jesus, How the Son of God Became a National Icon. And in that book, he chronicles the, the continued evolution and reinvention of Jesus. From the Jesus of the colonial era of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, to the Jesus of today. What he shows is that man who was created in the image of God has constantly sought to recreate the Son of God in his own image. And through the, the art that the author looks at and, and various uh, portrayals of Jesus, we begin to see the idols of humanity's hearts. And there's no different in this situation. Jesus has been ministering with his disciples, going around with his 12, but also a larger crowd. He's fed the 4,000. The Pharisees are demanding a sign, and he's even healed a blind man just before this discussion. There's a lot of conversation about who he is, and people are trying to figure it out. But what uh, we must not do is what so many have done who reject the truth claims of Jesus is to consider him a moral teacher. At the beginning of your bulletin in the preparation for worship section, there is this quote from Mere Christianity that I want to read for you. C.S. Lewis writes, discussing this very question in a previous decade, he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level 
on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him, his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So while I understand what many in um, universities and other settings have said about Jesus being a great moral teacher, what they do is they try to put Jesus at a size where we ignore his claims and can tolerate who he is without any direct impact on their lives. And so this morning, as we consider this question, the question of Jesus, the question is, what impact does Jesus have upon your life? How is he influencing and shaping the way that you live as followers of Christ? This is an important part and an important question for Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel has 16 chapters. Chapter 8 is the hinge. And it's actually on this particular question, which is the first of Jesus' three um, announcements that he's going to the cross, that we find this pivot. That, that he's moving away from being a miracle worker and one who is teaching with great authority and he's bringing healings to begin to announce that he's on the way. This little phrase occurs nine times in Mark 8 through 12. And the destination that he is going on the way to is Jerusalem where he is going to lay down his life. And he is going to endure the sins and the guilt and the, the cup of God's wrath to atone for the sins of God's people. But that's not yet what these folks have figured out. And it's what the folks who say that Jesus is simply a moral teacher want to ignore and push off to the side. So let's look this morning at this passage and the question that God asked us. But let's look at through three. First, who does Jesus say, who, who do people say that I am? Kind of the public opinion, the court of public appeal. What, what is the buzz about Jesus? And then second, who do you say that I am? And he's calling us to a personal response, to a personal commitment that we would understand and not just get lost in the masses, but we as an individual would assert what we believe about who Jesus is. And then from that, in answering the question, what does this mean and how does it impact our lives? We're going to focus on this question in verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? So let's start. Who do people say that I am? Verse 27. We find from the disciples that they offer three responses. First, John the Baptist. Why would the disciples say that Jesus was John the Baptist? John the Baptist was a contemporary of Jesus. And what we know from Mark 6, that King Herod was put off by John the Baptist. <laughs> That's a polite way to say it. But what he did was not very polite. He took John the Baptist's head. And so what these folks were beginning to see is that John the Baptist was one that Scripture tells us in John 1 was a voice crying in the wilderness, Isaiah 40. And the significance of that idea of, of John being one crying in the wilderness is that he was one who was smoothing out the path for the Lord to come. And that through that and John's work, he was bringing comfort to his people and declaring God's promises and reminding them of what God was going to do. And in verse 11 of chapter 
Isaiah 40, it says, He will tend his sheep, or he will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. And he moves on and he talks about the work of the Lord, remembering his promises and reestablishing his people. People were longing for Jesus to be as John the Baptist. But what we find is that that's simply not the case. Second, they say, is he Elijah? And that's a tremendous honor to be uh, associated with Elijah. Elijah is one that, that raised the dead and stopped uh, prayed to the Lord and had the rains stopped and then called for them to return. He's the one who had the showdown with the prophets of Baal. And that through that, the Lord rained fire and showed himself to be the, the true God, the God of Israel, the God for all the nations of whom all should bow. But in that, even there, and in, in 1 Kings 17, we're told that Elijah was carried away in a chariot of fire. And so folks, understanding the Bible, that good Hebrew mothers taught their good Hebrew children, that they're believing that maybe Jesus is Elijah. He's come again. And why would that be so significant? In Malachi 4.5, it tells us, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. These folks were looking to, to the day of the Lord. And they were thinking, maybe this is the fulfillment of God's promise. And, and in Malachi 4, 6, the Lord has sent Elijah and that he is about to do something spectacular. What would that spectacular thing be? It would be to for, throw off the, the, the foreign oppression of the Roman Empire, to reestablish the Davidic kingdom and raise up Israel as one united nation to flourish as God had covenanted with his people, this was their longing. Still others were asking the question if Jesus was one of the prophets. One of the prophets who it tells us in Deuteronomy 18 would be like Moses, even greater than Moses. And in Deuteronomy 18, 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like Moses from among you. From your brothers, it is him to... It is to him you shall listen. And it's from this that we have this picture of how God had brought his people out of Egypt, out of the slavery, out of the bondage, and he had established them at Sinai, and he would be their God, and, he, and they would be his people, and he was taking them into the promised land. You see, these are all the expectations that these individuals, these, the, 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 the pundits and uh, opinions and all those who are trying to interpret what they're seeing about Jesus are beginning to say. Now, that's really a good guess. Let's give them some credit. We have the benefit of 2,000 years and looking back with the, the Holy Spirit and understanding God's Word. They were getting really close. I'm not sure if I would have given as good an answer. But it's deficient because what they fail to recognize is what is so central about who Jesus is. They understood that he was a person. But they're not understanding that he is God. That he's divinity. Last week we talked about the storm and God controlling the storms and how only God can do that. And they just haven't connected all the dots yet. And as all of this is swirling around, Jesus turns to his uh, disciples, he turns to them and he says, but who do you 
say that I am. It's great that this is what the masses think. It's great that this is the popular opinion. opinion. They're getting really close. But he begins to challenge them to separate them from the majority opinion and risk making a personal confession. He's challenging to separate themselves from the the public opinion to make a personal confession. And why is that so important? Because it's real easy to say we believe something or we think something when we have the multitudes at our back. But so often what we find is that when someone asks us individually, well, what do you think about that? Then we're a little more reluctant to speak. And what we find is that Peter, who was never reluctant to speak, pipes up and says, you are the Christ. And and Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, where there's another account of this, it says that you have spoken rightly, and it's only through the Spirit that this has been revealed to you. To understand the significance of this moment, we must look at this word Christ, or Messiah, which meant to anoint. To anoint. um, Peter is announcing that Jesus is the Lord's anointed one. And this is not something that we should forget or that we should consider lightly, because Peter was a good Orthodox Jew. And understanding his Torah, to be able to, to declare these things, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, that he was the Lord's anointed, he was making a radical declaration, and Jesus commends him for it. In this, what we understand is that while Peter gives him the right title, he doesn't yet have full understanding He gives him the right title, but he doesn't have full understanding. You see, in the Old Testament, there were three sorts of people who were anointed. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. And it's through this kingship of of Samuel anointing Saul and Samuel anointing David and that process that was established in the royal line that that Peter in the, the, the spirit of the day is saying that Jesus is going to be the next king. He's the one who's going to bring comfort to his people by throwing off foreign oppression. And in our expectation of the day of the Lord to come, he's going to establish the new kingdom. He's saying, guys, do you get what is before us? This is amazing. He is excited. He is thrilled. He he sees Jesus as being the Lord's servant from Isaiah 49. He's going to restore Israel. This is a tremendous, tremendous declaration. But what happens is something really interesting. Jesus, because he's not yet ready for the word to get out, strictly charges them to tell them uh, for them to tell no one then something happens what we're understanding about the confession of the cross the message about or the, what we're understanding about the message of Jesus is that you can't have it without the cross without the cross there is no kingdom without the cross Jesus is not who he says he is and what Jesus begins to do in his first first announcement of his death and resurrection and ultimately his mission, he not only acknowledges his identity as the Christ of the Lord's anointed, but he is giving out a blueprint for what he's come to do. 
And when he looks at his disciples and giving them greater clarity, it says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In that we find this beautiful uh, verb phrase of, of he must. That word is not just there by happenstance. It's acknowledging that Jesus is laying down his life for his sheep. That no one is taking it from him. That this is a part of the plan that was set in motion before time began. Before the foundations of the earth. When God would redeem his covenant people. That Jesus would come and humble himself in the form of a servant. The form of a servant and he would suffer. And he would die. And he would be rejected but he would rise again. And in this it's simply more than Peter can, can compute at that moment. And I dare say not just Peter, but the whole entourage of the disciples. And what does Peter do? He does something rather foolish. In verse 32, he goes to Jesus and he says to him plainly, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That word rebuke is the same word we saw last week when Jesus rose up out of, the, out of his slumber and spoke to the storm. It was, it's one of the harshest forms in, in the Greek, uh, Koine Greek, of a correction and a discipline. I want you to put yourself in this situation. Peter, the spokesman of the disciples, stands up and announces that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord's anointed. And the Lord explains his mission of what he's come to do to seek and save the lost and give his life as a ransom for many, which he will say in Mark 10. And as he's explaining this to him, Peter is immediately going, wait a minute. That's not what I signed up for. Jesus, that's not what you came to do. You came to do something else. What we find is that Peter does the very same thing that so many of us do. That we hear the good news of the gospel. Having life and having it abundantly. Following Jesus. But as soon as he tells us that it's going to be hard. That we're going to suffer that we're going to struggle and, and, dare I say, may have to die. That that's what it means to follow Jesus and to be an obedient disciple. We simply say, wait a minute. Jesus, I want the warmth of the womb. I, I don't need a new birth. I, I don't need transformation. I'm pretty comfortable just the way things are. You see, I was thinking about my kids in this kingdom. I was really hoping to get in the, the right and the left seat. And the reason why the rest of the disciples are so bothered with James and John is because it's the question they were going to ask, but James and John beat, some, beat them to the punch. You see, all of us are, have this mentality of self-preservation and looking out for number one, and that's what Peter's doing. He's looking out for number one. And what we see that though he can give Jesus the right title, he, 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 he suffers in his understanding of God's redemptive mission. He, he suffers like so many of us the, who, who say, Jesus, I, I, I'm fine to follow you, but don't ask too much of me. You can leave my career alone. I'm fine with just the way things are. You can leave me alone with my relationships because I've finally got it to where I want it and I don't want anyone to interrupt or to encourage or, 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 or coerce me to behave in a different way. Certainly leave my children alone. I don't want you meddling in their life. My dream, the American dream for them, is security and safety. Don't call them to some foreign place to obey you and send them off to some foreign land where I can't see their, my grandkids. Jesus, I'll be fine if you just leave them alone. 
what we find is that we're just like Peter in this. And that when we start to play God, bad things happen. What we see is that Peter is writing a script for how the salvation of the world should come. And in so doing, and in the sinfulness and brokenness of his own heart, that Jesus going to the cross to redeem, what he is essentially doing is acting in an anti-Christ-like behavior. It's contrary to what Jesus has come to do. How do we know that? Because Jesus then rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Because the whole point of Satan and Satan's mission is to thwart what Jesus came to do. That's why in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, Jesus tempts Christ in the, or Satan tempts Christ in the wilderness. He's trying to get him to, to, to seek power and seek relevance and to seek being spectacular and to speak, seek redemption in some other way than God has laid out. He's saying there's got to be an easy way out. There's got to be another way, and Jesus will not fall for the trick. And we find that time and time again, that through the the ministry of Satan, if you will allow that word, he, he is constantly seeking to undo what Christ is doing. See, that's the purpose of sin. That's, that's the point of sin. It is ravaging and undoing all the good and all the, 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 the glory that God had put in creation and Satan couldn't stand it. And so he sows seeds of doubt, sows seeds of discord that sin would come and ruin the glorious image of, of God as he put it upon man. And what Jesus is telling them is that, that for redemption to come and for rescue to come and for shalom to be restored to God's creation, that he must go and lay down his life. And in this, he, he offers a correction, which is what we need to understand today of what does this all mean. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, friends, the call to be my disciple leads you to a confession of who Jesus is. But the confession of who Jesus is is the call to follow him to the cross, to lay down our agendas, to lay down our own rights, to lay down all our best dreams, and for him to replace them with something greater. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about an economy that we don't understand. He's not talking about return on investment in the way that we think about things. No, he's, he's saying that Jesus who was rich became poor. He's saying that Jesus who was king became a servant. He's saying the one who was greatest of all became a servant of all. He says that it's through losing everything that you gain everything. It's the reality of the upside-down kingdom and the way of the cross, not a theology of glory that says, I just want to prosper, I just want to gain blessing, I just want to gain more and be comfortable. No, what Jesus is calling us is to the complete reversal of the idols and ideals of the world. It says only when believers confess Jesus that they are inevitably confessing and acknowledging that they are going to become what He is. And if we're going to become what He is and be obedient to Christ, then we must lay down our own rights and deny ourselves to follow Him on the path 
and the way of the cross. You see, but this is a struggle for us. This is a struggle for me. Because we don't want this. Who wants to be persecuted? Who wants to suffer? Who wants to endure the shame of the cross? What we find in Hebrews 12 is that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the shame of the cross. And that in so doing, that he went to the cross. And it's through his sacrifice that he reconciles sinners to God. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What we said in our gospel assurance that, that therefore if any man is in Christ, the old things have passed away and the new have come. You see what Jesus is doing is offering us the fullness of the kingdom. The kingdom that began and was consummated and inaugurated through his death on a cross. Death for sinners like Peter who though in their best intentions mess it up, who rebuke the Lord and, and, and say, that you know, you can't do it that way, but yet in his patience, he offers correction and calls us to himself. And he invites us in to his glorious mission. See, this is important for us. If you are new here, we would encourage you to consider the truth claims of Jesus as they're presented in the gospel. That you would come to a saving faith and that you would believe that he laid down his life for you. If you're a member of this church, we, we, we pray that through the Spirit's work and applying the word to our lives, that we would become the gospel-centered community of disciple-making disciples. That from here, when we go out into our uh, POAs and HOAs and our school board meetings and everything else, that we would go into those places and that we would reflect the redemptive love of Jesus. The cruciform shape of remembering his promise for us. You see, Jesus didn't come so that we would vote a certain way or attain a certain zip code or drive a certain type of car or wear a certain label or have a certain set of relationships. Jesus is doing something incredibly more with that. He is doing something far more abundant than we can ask or dream. In this quote from Brennan Manning, again in your worship bulletin, it says, the gospel is absurd. And the life of Jesus is meaningless unless we believe that he lived, died, and rose again with but one purpose in mind, to make brand new creation. Not to make people with better morals, but, but to create a community of prophets and professional lovers, men and women who would surrender to the mystery of the fire of the Spirit that burns within, who would live in ever greater fidelity to the omnipresent Word of God, who would enter into the center of it all, the very heart and mystery of Christ, into the center of the flame that consumes, purifies, and sets everything aglow with peace, joy, boldness, and extravagant, furious love. This, my friend, is what it really means to be a Christian. You see, it's not about the car we drive. It's not about the check mark we put in our ballot. It's not about where our kids go to school or the life that they should have. It's about being made whole. It's about sinners becoming saints and going out and participating in his mission and to announcing the good news that the king has come. And though he has come in a way that we don't understand and looks different than the story we would have written, he wrote one that was better than we could have imagined. And so what is it that we will believe about Jesus? Will we continue to 
offer up reimaginations of who he is so that we can tolerate and be in relationship with him to make him safe for the whole family? You see, there's nothing safe about Jesus because where he calls us, where he leads us, what he wants to do when he gets a hold of our life is nothing that we really want for ourselves. But when we taste it, and we see that he's good, and we're drawn into covenant relationship with him where we know the fullness of the truth, beauty, and goodness of who he is, then we will follow him to the end of our days. And so, friends, the question is, what type of church do we want to be? What type of community do we want to be? Do we want to be a community that continues to, to, to have a Jesus, a, a lucky rabbit's foot for a Jesus? A Jesus that we feel like is a vending machine. As long as we put in our money, we can ask and get out what we want as long as we push the right buttons. Or do we want a Savior that's so amazing, so divine, that He demands our soul, our life, and our all? You see, it's through that that we find that God is redeeming all things. And it's that Jesus. It's the one who calms the storm and heals the sick. It's the one who gives sight to the blind and, 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 and was rose, has risen again on the third day. Is that Jesus that we long for? It's that Jesus in which we hope. And so we pray that the Lord would not just give us the understanding to give him the right title, but would give us the transformed heart to follow him wherever he calls us. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that Jesus blows our circuits. Lord, that he Lord, did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he obeyed the law in perfection. And then even when supernatural and natural forces challenged him to go a different direction. Lord, that he had set his eyes towards the cross. And he was unswerving in his resolve to lay down his life for his sheep. Lord, we pray that you would restore us, that you would bind us up, Lord, that you would draw us into your fold and you would continue uh, to set before us, Lord, goodness and mercy. Lord, help us to be the people that you desire us to be. And Lord, help us to have the grace and give us the grace, Lord, to be the people on the mission you've called us to be. To, Lord, be your instruments of redemption in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and beyond. Lord, that through ordinary people, Lord, you would bring the extravagance and extraordinariness of the gospel to bear in the lives of others so that they would have hope, Lord, so that they would find life. Lord, may we be a people who truly believes Jesus, and may we be a people who truly follows him. Praise in his name. Amen.